0: As we step into God's word, I want that picture of the gospel to be in your heads, as we hear all the things that Jesus is going to say this morning, okay? Now, retelling the story uh, of how he adopted his two sons, one of my favorite authors, Dr. Russell Moore, who's the, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, he starts with these chilling words, the creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. He continues, he tells a story like this. He says, my wife, Maria, and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. The orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the the squalor and the stench, although we did at times stifle the urge to vomit and, and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. I stopped and I pulled on Maria's elbow and I was like, why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and the punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. You might have noticed the kids that walked in to watch the baptism this morning and how quiet and not quiet they are, which we rejoice in. Here, if Dr. Moore says, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry. Because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says in our text this morning. These are the words of Jesus as we continue in this series in the Gospel of John, sitting with him and his disciples as he explains to them what's about to happen, his betrayal His death, his resurrection, he reassures them with these words I will not leave you as orphans. In essence, Jesus is saying, I'm not abandoning you to figure things out for yourselves, to cry out for help and hear nothing but silence. He's trying to comfort them. And so he continues to prepare them for what comes next, for what will be actually a more intimate and close relationship with God than they could have ever even imagined. But before I get ahead of myself, let's actually read the text this morning. Our text is John 14, 15 through 31, so you can go there, we're going to have it on the screen as well. If you're new to the Bible, right, we're reading out of this book called the Gospel of John. The Bible is actually not a book, it's a library of 66 books, and the Gospel of John is one of four Gospels, these, these books that retell the story of Jesus, and in our text this morning we're getting near the end of that particular Gospel. So if you're able, whether you're here or worshiping with us from home, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Like I said, you can follow along in your own Bible or right on the screen. The text is going to be there. John 14, 15 through 31. Jesus is continuing his conversation with the disciples by saying this, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is God's word, you may be seated. The story that I told at the beginning that Dr. Moore tells is at its core a story of love. We all want to be It's almost like it's baked into our DNA to want to love and be loved, to feel like we matter to someone else. But love does make us vulnerable, right? It opens us up to pain. It's it's risky. And many of us may even be tempted to abandon love after a particularly painful experience. For other of us, we might even struggle in the love that we do have because we're insecure in that love, wondering if we are actually really loved by the other person. Both of these feelings of abandonment and insecurity easily transfer to our relationship with God. You see, our text this morning is about love, but specifically it is about love for God. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to be loved by God? These feelings of abandonment and insecurity are addressed in this text head-on by Jesus. And so wherever you are this morning, however you're feeling in your relationships, and in specifically your relationship with God, I want us all to hear the words of Jesus from this text with the gentle love, the tenderness, the compassion that he gives it. Listen to how he explains what it means to love God and be loved by God as he prepares his disciples to prove his love for them and for his people in just less than 24 hours. And Jesus' description of the loving relationship that believers have with God that we're talking about this morning has actually four distinctive marks that come out of this text. And this is how we're going to be walking through the text this morning. These marks are a spirit-empowered obedience, a Jesus-determined perspective, a spirit-taught peace, and a Jesus-defined joy. You see, our relationship with God must be marked by obedience made possible only by the Spirit of God, by a perspective that is determined by Jesus himself as he has revealed himself in his word, a true peace that is taught and held onto only by the Spirit of God, And a joy that is defined not by our human standards, but by Jesus, whose plans and ways in the world are wiser and better than our plans and our ways in the world. A spirit-empowered obedience, a Jesus-determined perspective, a spirit-taught peace, and a Jesus-defined joy. But I want us to catch up on the conversation here. Right Before verse 15, the story that we're stepping into right with Jesus' words, Jesus has just told his followers that when he leaves, because he leaves their relationship with God is going to change, right? Those who believe in him will do greater things than he did, meaning that because he died to pay for for our sins, for their sins, and came back to life to give us new life, that his followers, anyone who believes, will be able to relate with God differently because he's opened a way back to God, but then also spread that good news of Jesus differently than when Jesus was on earth. He also said that if believers pray in his name, meaning according to Jesus' character, who he is, what he desires, what he has done, then we can be certain that we have what we pray for because we'll be praying in alignment with him, with what he desires to pray for. Both of these changes in our relationship with God right before our text begs the question, how is this going to work? How are going to, greater things going to be possible? How am I going to pray in Jesus' name? How am I going to know those things? And so Jesus clarifies in our first section of our text this morning from verses 15 to 21. If you love me... Keep my commands. You see, up until this point, Jesus has shown them his love for them. He's told them about his love for them. He's even commanded them to love each other. And now he turns and starts talking about their love for him. If you love me, if, which begs a then, then keep my commands. In simplest terms, Jesus is defining their love for him with the mark of obedience. Look at verse 21, just a little further down, where he repeats himself again using different words. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Pause. Pro tip is if you're ever studying your Bible, if you're walking with us in the Bible reading plan, if the text that you're reading repeats itself multiple times, changes some words up, has the same idea, pay attention. The author's trying to tell you something. It's trying to say, hey, look at this. It is their big, like, look here sign with repetition. In verse 21, we have the same explanation as verse 15. I will know you love me by your obedience. If you have, not just understand intellectually, but truly grasp my commands, and therefore keep them, obey them, actually do them, then it will be undeniable that you love me. And Jesus is not just about, Mentally understanding and agreeing with what he says about life. We have to actually act on it. That's what he's saying here. But he continues to clarify. He says, if you are someone who loves me, then that means you are someone who is loved by me and by my Father, someone who is loved by God. And better yet, someone who actually knows me, who experiences true relationship with me. To say it another way, Jesus is explaining here that intimacy with him, relationship with God, turns on, is marked by obedience. But I want you to be clear. I want you to be clear on this. I want us to be clear. I don't want you to miss this. This text, along with its context and the immediate audience that he has, the disciples, is not trying to explain how someone becomes a Christian. What Jesus is doing here is defining what it means to be a Christian. And that is a crucial difference, right? Because Jesus is not teaching his disciples that they can get to God. They can get God to love them by obeying him. I mean, if that's what Jesus is talking about, that's not really a love worth having, right? Right? A love that is based on and changes with how good you're doing in the moment. What Jesus is saying here is that once you do become a disciple, a believer, a follower, once you respond to the initial love of God and you start to follow Jesus, that relationship must be marked by faith in Jesus, love for Jesus, and obedience to Jesus. In effect, Jesus is in this moment DTRing with his disciples. right? And if you don't know that, I was in college... Pretty recently, it's defining the relationship. He's trying to tell them what this is supposed to look like. But Jesus does not leave this explanation hanging in the air. And this is why I can say that the first mark of relationship with God is a not just obedience, but spirit-empowered obedience. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Do you catch the logic of what Jesus is doing here? Right? Those who are true followers of Jesus love him. They show that love by obeying him. And for true followers, Jesus guarantees another advocate for them. Remember the context of when he's saying this. He's about to leave, right? They're worried, they're anxious, they're wondering what all of this means. They feel like they're going to be abandoned. And so he tells them, listen, listen guys, I am sending someone else. And not just anybody, but another one like me. And that someone is going to do two things. He will help you and be with you forever, you see, the first title that Jesus gives for this person that he's sending is an advocate, a helper. Right? This, it's a title that means one who is next to you, one who encourages and keeps you moving forward, one who actively speaks on your behalf. And Jesus is very clear. Notice in the text, this, this word is not wasted. He's talking about another advocate. The only other time this title is actually used in the New Testament is 1 John 2, about Jesus himself. 1 John 2.1 says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What Jesus is promising in our text is that he's sending another advocate, another one like him, who will do the same work he has been doing, one who will help them and be with them forever. He's not just giving them a temporary fix. It's not a band-aid. It's permanent. It's forever. And verse 17, he also describes this advocate as the spirit of truth. Not only, is one who he, he, not only is he one who walks alongside us, but he is one who is characterized by truth. Jesus, who just called himself a few verses earlier, the truth, is now calling this new person he is sending the spirit of truth. But then Jesus adds this interesting clarification. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Little Bible nerd trivia. In the Gospel of John, the word translated as world doesn't mean planet Earth as it relates to a geographic location, but humanity in relation to our spiritual location. In this one word, John paints this picture of all of humanity in rebellion against God every time he uses it in his Gospel. A world that is deeply focused on the material that is often skeptical of the spiritual. It is all of what makes society evil, greedy, selfish, sinful, cruel, violent, chasing after anything and everything that will offer pleasure or relief from pain. This is the world that cannot accept this new advocate, the spirit of truth, because it is skeptical of what it can't see, and is incapable on its own to know truth, having been so steeped in lies. To prove my point, this is also the world that near the beginning of the Gospel of John we read about when Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As one scholar writes about this, he says, Jesus is not saying that God's love is so large it is enough for a big world. He is saying that God's love is so deep it is complete enough for a bad world. The world cannot accept the Spirit of truth, but that is not the case with everybody. That is not the case with every believer that has submitted themselves to Jesus. You see, for those who believe, those who trust in Jesus to be who he says he is, the privilege of knowing God, truly knowing God, not just believing in him, but experiencing him, is bound up with the spirit of truth. And in some mysterious but truly awesome way, the spirit makes God's presence so tangible, so intimate, that Jesus can say what he says in the next verse. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's not leaving them without hope. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. He's talking about resurrection. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. It's almost like he's answering the confusion on their faces when he's talking about the Spirit and this other advocate, right? They're, they're kind of like, yeah, Jesus, that's really nice, man, but, but what about you? Like, what's going on with you? We want you. And he answers with compassion, with incredibly personal language. I won't leave you as orphans without love or help, without a protector, without explaining to you what comes next, without providing for you. I'm not leaving you in the silence of an orphanage. I'm promising you an immediate comforter, an immediate advocate who will speak truth to you, who will be with you forever, who will not leave ever. And this is good. He's promising them the Spirit. This is why the obedience that he talks about in verses 15 and 21 is not just any obedience, but a spirit-empowered obedience. If they're going to do greater things than what Jesus did, if they're going to pray in his name, if they're going to demonstrate their love for Jesus through their obedience, they need more than their own strength. We need more than our own strength to be able to do that. We need more than our own wisdom and our own discipline. We need the Spirit of God. But don't miss Jesus' mark of a loving relationship with God here right? It is still marked by obedience, right? It is holding in tension both our dependence upon the Spirit and our actual obedience. So the question for us this morning is, do we actually connect these two, right? Do we connect love and obedience, or do we think that they're mutually exclusive? Do we see obedience and obeying God as as duty or oppressive, or do we see it as the loving response to God's love? Do we believe that the God who adopts us into His family, who created us, knows the only way to true life. And do we prove that belief by obeying what he commands, what Jesus has commanded? Remember, obedience is not the way to get adopted. That's all Jesus' love for us. But if you're going to live as a child of God, this is what that looks like. From verses 15 to 21, spirit-empowered obedience. This is the first mark of a relationship between God and his people that is defined by love. And now we're going to go into the next section. Verses 22-24, through the second mark, a Jesus-determined perspective, which is actually revealed by a question, which is why I love the disciples so much, because as I'm reading this text and I'm trying to figure out what's going on, I have questions, and then all of a sudden they ask the question that I have, going, okay, cool, Jesus is going to answer me now. Now, before I jump into that question, I do want to say, I've worn contacts for over 15 years. Ride with me, this is going to make sense in a minute. And I've got to say, the first time I wore them, I was just amazed at what the world actually looked like, right? I I stopped having headaches. I could see across the room. People stopped being blobs across the way from me. I saw people's faces. It was incredible. Wearing these corrective lenses changed my perspective. It corrected my view of the world, right? You see, one of the most important parts of any relationship, whether friendship, marriage, parents and children, co-workers, neighbors, whatever it may be, is perspective right being able to have the right perspective of the other person and being careful not to distort reality when things come up what is revealed by the question that we get from this disciple in verse 22 is that jesus's disciples actually have the wrong perspective on what's about to happen look at the text lord why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world jesus has just made a distinction between the disciples and the world and they're catching it right they're, they're going okay You're making this difference between followers and those who don't follow you, and I can't really make sense of this. After all, if Jesus is supposed to be this Savior come to free his people from oppression, wouldn't you want to be seen by everybody? If you're the king that is coming to save us, wouldn't you want to come to all this fanfare, to ride in, to take over? Why all this secrecy? I mean, at this point, they might even be wondering, is there a change of plans? Is there something getting in the way of Jesus' plans? The question behind the question here is whether or not Jesus is truly the promised king and what kind of king he actually is. It's a question of perspective. And Jesus doesn't skip a beat. Look at verse 23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them. We will come to them. We will make our home with them. He answers the question like kind of a typical Jesus answer where it's not direct, but he continues on insisting. He continues on insisting on what love really is. Essentially, the way Jesus answers is by saying that my plans have stayed the same. I'm not giving up on the world. No, God will come to anyone who demonstrates faith and love by obedience. But he continues, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. If you look at the religions of the world, there are many religions who want to find some some mystical or, or spiritual connection to deity, to God, to divinity, Right? In their own way, they attempt to provide an experience with the divine. But Jesus' answer here is it's pretty different from all of those attempts to connect at God. He gives not just this different perspective on knowing God, but the only true perspective. Look at what he says. he says. The first thing he does is he firmly grounds any relationship with God in the historical reality of his ultimate revelation in God, of God himself. Right? You can't know God without loving Jesus, anyone who loves me. What Jesus is doing is saying, hey, I'm the only way, the truth, and the life, which is the verse he said before, but, but he's making it very clear, you have to love me. But then he shows that he's not just about explaining some abstract spirituality, some kind of mysticism, but he's about pointing people to the only true God. Look at the last half of verse 24. These words are not his own, but the Father who sent him. And then lastly, as we have seen over and over again, he connects personal devotion to him, love for him, demonstrated by obedience with the promise to truly experience God. There is no other way to access the divine or be spiritual or relate to God than in Jesus Christ alone. That's what he's saying here. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my father will love them and we will come to them. We will have a relationship with them. The central claim of Christianity is that the only way to know God, to be in relationship with God, is in Jesus Christ himself. There's no other way around him. This is the good news of Jesus, that he actually did make a way to know God. And this is the second mark of a relationship between God and his people that's defined by love, a Jesus-determined perspective. Our relationship with God must be marked by both a spirit-empowered obedience and a Jesus-determined perspective. But now in this third section, we come to our third mark. A spirit taught peace. So from verses 25 through 27, we actually go back to this focus on the spirit. Look at verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, same title he used earlier, now a new one, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. Jesus here is revealing more about this promised advocate, this promised spirit of truth. He is called the Holy Spirit. This is the name most of us Christians know him by, and similar to the name of Jesus Christ, where we sometimes know him so well that we mistake Christ as his last name and forget that it's a title, we hear the title the Holy Spirit and we forget holy is a description. He is characterized by holiness. The one being sent is not just any spirit. And he's not just characterized by truth and power. He is pure in everything that he does. And he is especially the Spirit of God, the only Spirit of God. He's not just any helper. If you've been tracking with the Bible, he is this Spirit of God himself. And to say it even more clearly, he is God. And as such, he is holy. Notice also in the text that he is sent by the Father in the name of of Jesus. We've already gotten something like that where we talk about praying in the name of Jesus. He is sent with the authority of Jesus to act in his place aligned with the plans of Jesus. The Spirit of God is not working His own plan on the side. This isn't a side hustle for Him. Right? He is completely aligned with the plan of the Father carried out by the Son. Verse 26 explains what that alignment looks like. He will teach and He will remind. In other words, the Spirit of God is not coming to give some new revelation independent of Jesus. As one author describes it, His is the continuation of Jesus' ministry. His main task, as Jesus explains it here, is to remind the followers of Jesus, of Jesus' teaching, to help them really get what it means. Especially right now, we're in the middle of this upper room and they're super confused. They're going to need someone to explain what in the world is happening. Which is why when Jesus came back to li- died and came back to life, it was the Spirit who put all the pieces together for the disciples. It's why we have the Word of God, because he reminded of Jesus' teaching and he helped them understand what it meant. He clarified and explained all that Jesus' death and resurrection meant, how it it not only saves people from sin but creates a brand new people of God called the church, a brand new community that follows Jesus and demonstrates love for Jesus by obeying his commands. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a teaching ministry. But it's not just that. It's also a ministry of peace. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be Afraid, the promise of the Spirit is not just a promise of understanding, but a promise of peace. This is why loving relationship with God is marked by a Spirit-taught peace. It's not peace as we define it, but as Jesus defines it. My peace I give you, a peace that's different from the world. After all, if you look around, the world is pretty incapable of giving peace, right? Just look around. Everything we look when we look around the world, everything is marked by violence and cruelty, and and people. Underhanded maneuvering in relationships, people taking advantage of others, pain and hurt. The world can try to manufacture peace, but it never lasts, and it's as fragile as the human heart is sinful. But by the, G- the death of Jesus, where he took on himself the violence and the cruelty of the world, where he took on himself the pain, the sin, the hurt of the world, he introduced peace no one could have even imagined. Right? Jesus doesn't promise that we won't go through difficult times, so let me clarify what he means by peace. Right? That's not the kind of peace he's talking about. After all, he is still going to the cross. But what he does promise is the ability to have peace in the middle of the storm. The ability to have peace when everything around you is raging. This is spirit-taught peace. Because it is peace that comes as a result of truly understanding who Jesus is and what he has done. Not just mentally, but in your heart. The kind of peace that changes the way that we pray. Amen? You see, this is the kind of peace that even specifically if I can talk about us as a church right now, even in this specific season, we need to be praying in. Right? As we seek for our next senior pastor, as we step into whatever God has for us in this next year, We pray in every situation of our lives, and specifically as a church, not in ignorant trust of God, but in the trust and peace that is deeply embedded within the character of God as he has revealed himself in Jesus. This is the third mark of a relationship between God and his people that is defined by love. A spirit-taught peace. A peace that the Bible says guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and that goes way past any kind of understanding we could have. It must be mar- our relationship with God must be marked by all three of these. A spirit-empowered obedience, <laughs> a Jesus-defined perspective, and a spirit-taught peace. But I promised you four, so we're going to get there. There's one more in the final section of our text, verse 28 through 31, Jesus-defined joy. Do not be afraid, Jesus says at the end of verse 27. He reminds him that he's still going away. You heard me say, verse 28, I am going away and I'm coming back to you. This is what caused them all the worry, the anxiety, all the stress. This is why they can't quite understand all that Jesus is saying. But Jesus goes deeper than their worry and their anxiety. Look at what he says in the text. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And my first question when I was reading this is, what? I mean, this is the same kind of if-then language that Jesus used earlier, but here's kind of got a different feel. A feel of something that's not true. If you loved me, If you really loved me, then this is what you would be doing. You'd be glad, but you're not. And so Jesus is here gently, but clearly questioning their love. Their focus is not on Jesus, but on themselves, right? In the darkness of their worry, they've been caught up in what one writer calls the paralyzing claustrophobia of self-love. They can't break out of thinking what will happen to us and try to start thinking about what's going to happen to Jesus, They should be glad that he gets to be with his father, but instead, they fail to understand and trust him. They fail to love him. The point here is that the disciples don't love Jesus, otherwise their reaction would be very different, or don't love Jesus as much as they thought they did. And unfortunately, as Christians, this can so often be our story too. We are so far more aware of our own struggles, our own sufferings, than keeping our eyes on Jesus. Then remembering what brings joy to Jesus. Sometimes we are so focused on ourselves that that is why we struggle so much because we can't see Jesus. And so in our darkest moments, worrying about what God is doing in the world, worrying about what God is doing in our country, worrying about what God is doing anywhere and everywhere, what we most often need more than anything is to see the beauty of what God has done in Jesus. Jesus in what he continues to do in the world as he calls more and more people to himself, as he saves people from their sins, to be reminded of who God is and what he has done. But Jesus' words here, and I hope that I'm not contributing to this, they're not intended to shame, saying, oh, well, you don't really love me, so kind of get your act together. They're intended to encourage. Look at the text, look at verse 29. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. What he's doing here is he wants to guarantee their faith when everything goes down. He wants to encourage them in their faith. He says, I know you're struggling right now, because I see your reaction, but I'm telling you this so that you will believe when it happens. When he is betrayed and beaten, when he stumbles with the cross on his back up to the place where he's going to be crucified, when he is buried buried, in a borrowed tomb after being nailed to the cross and suffocating to death. And three days later when he comes back to life, he wants them to believe when all of that goes down. And that's what he calls us to do when we struggle. He doesn't shame you, saying, why why don't you believe in me enough? He says, I see you in your struggles and your worries. I see you in the cycle of anxiety. And I'm right here by the Spirit of God Remember, believe again. Now Jesus changes things here, even as he's encouraging them. Look at verse 30. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. He wants them to believe what is about to happen is proof that he loves the Father, precisely because he is obeying the Father. This is not the victory of the enemy, Satan. This is not God's defeat. This is God's perfect plan. Jesus' betrayal, death, and resurrection has always been plan A, and there was no backup plan. But do you see what Jesus is doing here at the end when he shifts here as he's finishing up with this section? He goes back to the love that has weaved in and out of this entire passage. You see, Jesus doesn't just command love to be shown through obedience. He goes first. Right? He paves the way. He shows his love for the Father by doing exactly what the Father commands. And this is why this is good news. This is why we can talk about obeying Jesus' commands and responding to what he taught. This is why we talk about peace and joy because Jesus went first. He is the truth who teaches us who God is. He is completely at peace, trusting his Father and pursuing joy as he returns to the Father. But at the center of it all, he is demonstrating his love for the Father and his love for us by obeying the Father. He went first. And the reason it matters that he went first is not just so that he would be a good example to follow, but more importantly, because he's the one that actually paved the way in the first place. Without him, there would be no way back to God. He went first to actually lay stone by stone the way back to God through his death and his resurrection. A relationship between God and his people is defined by love because it is defined by Jesus. It is marked by a spirit-empowered obedience that looks like Jesus' obedience. It is marked by a Jesus-determined perspective, a spirit taught peace and a Jesus-defined joy, all because of what he did at the cross, all because of what he did coming out of the tomb to new life. So as the scene that we just read starts to fade, right? Jesus' last words there is, come now, let us leave. Our minds and hearts should be spinning, There's a lot that he has taught us in this section, a lot that he has promised us, a lot to believe. And this morning, the question is for us as we think through this and feel a little bit of what the disciples feel, the question I want to put before us is, does God feel distant to you right now? Do you feel disconnected from God? If you're not a Christian this morning, the answer to that distance from God is actually Jesus himself, right? He's the one who bridges the gap in that distance. He is the one who makes a way back to God. He came to die for us, to pay for our sin, to pave that way that we might actually be in relationship with God again. But if you are a Christian and you still feel that, and God does, feels distant, like the disciples feel like Jesus is kind of distancing himself, then we do need to remember that gospel, not just to understand, but to respond to the reminding ministry of the Holy Spirit. Maybe even consider what we could do this next week to grow in our love for Jesus, a love that will spill over into obedience, right? To think about how we can tell God we love Him with both our words and our actions in this next week. I want to go back to the story that Dr. Moore, it was Giving about the story of his adoption he finishes it like this he says the silence continued as we entered the boy's room the ones he was going to um, adopt neither boy made a sound we read them books filled with words they couldn't understand but there were no cries no squeals no groans every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we entered in silence and on the last day of the trip." Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. I mean, we had to tell the boys goodbye because by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears, and that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxime, one of the boys, fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and mother now. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a family. A family that will never leave you. Even if everything falls apart, God is there through his people. Our relationship is defined by love and marked by a Spirit-empowered obedience, a Jesus-determined perspective, a Spirit-taught peace, and a Jesus-defined joy because it is a relationship that is marked by the love of the Father first. And He hears our cry, and He never leaves us alone. So if you feel distant from God, hear this text. Jesus is present by His Spirit to answer you. Let's pray that that might be the case for all of us this morning. God, this morning we pray that you would continue to work your word into our hearts by your spirit. That you might humble us, that we might confess our sin and accept your free gift of grace in Jesus. We cannot obey without your spirit. We have the wrong perspective apart from Jesus. We are not at peace without your spirit and we misunderstand true joy without Jesus. And we know that your love is not just an example to us. It is the only way to fix what we have broken by our sin. It is the only way to make enemies into children. This morning, Lord, as we step into whatever you have for us this week and this day, we pray that your word would continue to work in our hearts, do its work in our lives, and bring us to an understanding of Jesus that's more than our head, but goes deep into our hearts. It's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen.